Hello there. Welcome to another episode of The Bliss of the Abyss, featuring me, your host, Mr. Robert Newmark Jones, although you can call me Ruskin Denmark if you absolutely insist. How are you doing? Sorry, it's been a little while for an episode. I have been dealing with quite severe jet lag and my usual case of food poisoning never seems to pass. Um... <laughs> So I've got a bit of a different show for you today. It's a conversation with actor, activist and uh, candidate for New York City Council District 6, Jeffrey Amura. Um, me and Jeffrey have been friends for about a decade now. Um, and he's recently um, become much more involved in politics and he's looking to run for election in uh, in District 6 in, in New York City this June. So to all my American uh, listeners, please consider supporting him, whether that be voting for him or donating uh, time or money, probably is better um, in any way that you can. Um, and he's also uh, just a, a fantastic actor, and that's actually how we met, and he's been in all kinds of big shows and small shows and everything in between and he's just a thoroughly decent human being and this was a really good chat and we talked about all kinds of things I mean one thing one thing we didn't talk about having a look at his little bio here is uh he had a job with the NYC Human Resource Administration as an undercover agent where I sat in waiting rooms getting to know mothers and children who were applying for public assistance the privilege of my upbringing came in sharp focus. These were underpaid working families whose incomes alone weren't enough to survive. It's a reality for far too many in New York City. Yeah, amen. He's a, he's a, uh, a campaigner for better working conditions, for fairer wages, and I think he'd make a really good politician. And I don't say that lightly because I'm not a big fan of politicians. But... There are good ones out there, aren't there? Um, and so this is a conversation that is quite a lot about politics, but also about how we know each other. Um, and there's some funny showbiz stories thrown in there as well. Um, I have recorded half of a solo episode um, that will be coming out either this week or next week. The reason it has been delayed is the aforementioned stomach issues so halfway through recording this episode uh, I think I started to develop a fever and then spent the next sort of few days getting very well acquainted with the oh kind of feeling um, without going into further detail I'm sure we don't need to and I don't want to ruin <laughs> Jeffrey's episode up top with talking about my digestive problems. So instead, what I will do is I will launch straight into this episode. Like I said, it's with Jeff and myself. He's running for um, for uh, candidacy in New York City. Um, everything can be found at jeffreyamura.com. That's Jeffrey with a J. Um, and I'll put the links and everything in the show notes. Um, and yeah, just, ha just have a look around and have a listen. And I think wh whichever side of the political spectrum you find yourself, all the way to the left, all the way to the right, somewhere in the middle, like a lot of us, um, I think 
listen listen to what he's got to say. Hear him out. I think he's an eminently sensible, charming, and brilliant human. And I hope you enjoy this episode of The Bliss of the Abyss, and I'll talk to you again soon. <laughs> What is this camera you're on here? Oh, does it look terrible? No, you look amazing. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. There we go. Uh, it's I got it for free off Amazon. There was like what, what kind of camera is it? It's uh it's just a little cheapy webcam, but oh. um, yeah, they they gave it to me in exchange for a positive review, which I was happy to give. Oh, so you're a you're a whore. <laughs> you you knew that already, didn't you? <laughs> can can you hear this leaf blower right now? He just started back up again. No, no. Okay, great. Can you hear me? Okay, I can hear you yeah. fine. Yeah, I yeah. can hear you great. Great. There we go. So all of the problems of the internet have been solved by us. Look at that. <laughs> How you doing, man? I'm doing okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm doing okay. It's uh, it's been a pretty wild few months. <laughs> I guess it's been a wild year, hasn't it? It's definitely been a wild year. Yeah, I'd say so. What is it now? It's the 3rd of March, right? So Mm -hmm. because the memories that are starting to pop up in my Facebook are like from a year ago when we were just about to be on the West End. So that means the pandemic was just about to hit the UK. Wait, what what were you working on? Yeah, I was uh, I was going to oh, immediately make this about me. Why don't I? Uh, <laughs> Are we recording right now? We're recording if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. Is this yeah. part of the show? I'm not ready. <laughs> it doesn't have to be part of the show. We cut it all out, don't worry. And I'll give you a proper intro, like ahead of time and stuff like that. Um, um, yeah, I was on, I was in a, a play that was, uh, it was called One Jewish Boy. That was me. And um yeah, it was uh we we got about a week in to the West End. Uh just enough to get the reviews and all the stars. Uh and then and then it ended. No, oh, no, I'm so sorry to hear that. <laughs> it, I mean, it's the same story as, as all the actors on the West End and on Broadway. I have so many friends who were yeah. you know, making their Broadway debut or they're about to open a show. That's and then the rug got pulled out from under there. That's right. I mean, this this was technically my West End debut, so I'm I'm actually wow. thankful that I managed to to make it. Uh, you know, briefly, we were actually going to tour the country and come to Broadway as well, but really, yeah. But I mean, you guys locked down. I think two days before we did the closure of Broadway and stuff, and so yeah. so I kind of I knew it was coming at that point. Hmm. Yeah. Well. You know, I I would actually have to sign off on that. Oh right. Yeah. So I I serve on the board of directors of of my union, Actors. It's it's Actors Equity. Yeah. Of of the U.S. Yeah. And we have you know we have like a reciprocal agreement with with British Equity. Of course. Um, but the the visa rules are really tight, and anytime a British citizen comes over here to work on, on one of our stages um, on yeah. Broadway the union has to sign off. And I, I chair the committee 
That right. signs off on that. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, look, I think it was the right decision. So, you know, props to you there. Um, I mean, I've recently had to come to the States for, for non-work purposes. And uh, it was it was crazy, Jeff. I mean, it was like crazy for the right reasons, you know, but um, I was but at they the let, gate. They let you in. They let me in because I'm married to Caitlin. But I was at the gate for an hour and a half while they were on the phone with Homeland Security. Like, it was that tricky to get in. Uh, and then... What were, they, what were they saying to Homeland Security? Well, I have no idea because I was not privy to... They, they, they you know, they moved away. But, um, you know, there's a... You know about the Esther, right? Um, I, I don't know what that is. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's, like, a, it's like an electronic visa that all visitors to the states have to get basically so i you know got mine as i always do and then i got to the gate and they're like yeah they've cancelled your esther they're cancelling all esters because no british nationals are allowed in the country right now luckily i had a marriage license and i had you know all of my ducks in a row but it was still just oh wild and i i calculated it the other day i was wearing because we had to not get covid right i mean obviously everyone has to not get covid but but we had to not get COVID so that we could test out of quarantine so we could go to the funeral, right? But that meant that, like, our, our gear, we looked like the crazy people. We had the gloves. We had two masks. We had the face shield. We were, you know, spraying every surface and wiping everything down. <laughs> and so I was, you, you had to quarantine before you went to the funeral? Quarantine, yeah, yeah, yeah. As in, When you arrive in the States, you have to quarantine and then test out of it. Mm. um so i was in all that gear for roughly 24 hours <laughs> wow. door to door <laughs> wow well I'm, I'm glad they let you in yeah i'm glad i'm glad you got to see family yeah and do what you needed to do it yeah. was um uh gosh it was a year ago this week that uh that that my my grandmother died Oh, she died uh, just a few days before you know the whole country started shutting down, and I got to fly home back back to Michigan for the funeral. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, I was just thinking the whole time how lucky we were. Yeah. That if she had if she had died just a few days later, oh my God. we may not have been able to have a funeral. Yeah. You know, everything then was so uncertain. And then getting after the funeral, getting back on the plane to fly to New York, which at the time was the epicenter. <laughs> I was like, what am I doing? Maybe I should just stay here in Michigan where yeah. it seems safe enough. Uh, but I, I, you know, getting into a taxi at LaGuardia Airport, yeah. and driving back into Manhattan and the streets are empty. Oh, what am I doing? Yeah, this is this is where I've been for the last year, staring at the the four walls of my apartment. Yeah, like we all have, huh? How how strange. I mean, yeah, I I would not recommend international travel to anyone right now. As horrible as it is being locked down at home and and staying here, it. Yeah, going on a plane was actually worse. So you know, small blessings. I, I'm I'm glad to hear that you you managed to do all of that without the COVID stuff because a COVID funeral is no joke. It is uh, just a horror show. Um, yeah, but let's not start things off on this. Hey, eh? <laughs> it's just it's so great to see. You. I've literally not seen you 
in years. I actually haven't seen you in years. I know it's so bizarre. I, I was thinking about this the other day when we said that we were going to do this. It's like, when was the last time I saw Jeffrey? Because it was it was in New York on one of my visits, but it must have been half a decade ago. I don't know, something like that. I think it's when we went to that flea market in Brooklyn. <laughs> yes, it is. I, I, I bought a pair of glasses there. Ah, are they still in circulation? Uh, I still have them. I, I don't. I, I, I still, they're still in drawers somewhere. Um, but uh, well, we should let everyone know how we met. Yes, I know, right? Our origin story, Jeffrey. Yeah, you know. I, so it was. Picture it. What year was that? Twenty eleven. Twenty. I think twenty eleven or twelve. Yeah, one of those. Oh, no, eleven. Definitely, definitely eleven. Maybe twenty ten. So we were in. Edinburgh, the Edinburgh Festival. Yeah, uh, we were both performing in, in different shows, and I, I saw, I just, you know, wandered into the theater and I sat down, didn't know anything about this play you were in, uh, and I just remember what I do remember about it is that uh, you gave just this remarkable performance, yeah, and I, I, I had to meet you, and so I introduced myself after. Um, because you know, I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty tough critic. I'm, I'm the worst person to go to the theater with. Because <laughs> I'm my favorite I don't, kind of guest. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like anything. <laughs> but you know, there's the rare occasion you see a performance where, uh, you know, as an actor, you're like, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> and that's it's pretty cool to have those experiences. And um, yeah. that that was my experience when I when I saw you on stage. So wow. And now I'm I'm lucky to call you a friend. Yeah, and you're the only person who's ever given me such a glowing review. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, and then I uh, I came and saw your show, which I think, it, am I right? Was it called Hamlet in 3D? It was, yeah. Aha! Uh-huh. I knew my mind wasn't that eroded, which was a fantastic show. And we hung out quite a few times in Edinburgh as well, and then we just maintained our friendship ever since. I mean, it's one of those rare sort of cool things that happens in life where you meet a like-minded soul and even though we live in different countries and have crazy different backgrounds none of that ever mattered well there's there's a reason for that i i, I believe and i am i'm not into astrology whatsoever but <laughs> but, <laughs> but we share the same birthday we're birthday twins uh-huh that's right a- april 23rd april 23rd shakespeare's as well Shakespeare's birthday and death date. Death day as well. Yeah, this is a really morbid conversation. This really is, isn't it? <laughs> oh, well. I mean, look, death, death and life sit right next to each other, don't they? Comedy and tragedy, the whole thing, right? So, it's all we've been yeah. thinking about for the last year. <laughs> I know. We'd be, we'd be remiss not to say it. But, um, but it's lovely to see you, dude. You're looking excellent, I have to say. Unlike me, I have... Put on, I don't know how many pounds this last week. Um, you look as trim and handsome as ever. Um, and go on. I, I, <laughs> yeah, don't stop now. And I want to talk, <laughs> I want to talk to you about so many things because obviously, not only are we friends, but also I haven't caught up with you in years. And also you've got all these exciting things going on in your life and have had exciting things that you've done since that I've not been able to talk to you about. So there's loads of exciting things to do. Um, and I don't know which order to do them either. I'll be honest with you, Jeffrey. But you know what I think is probably the best place to start off is the fact, because it's time sensitive, that you're 
you're actually running for a district in Manhattan. It looks like perhaps the swankiest one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> district six, right, which is like Central Park, Upper Upper West, West Side. Yeah. Have I got it right? So that's a very, very nice area. I've spent some time there myself. It's gorgeous. Um, and you're running against uh, no. There's a there's an incumbent who's retiring. Am I getting all this wrong? Tell me, I'm not. I, yeah, it's a, it's an open seat. So I'm running for City Council District Six. It's it's the Upper West Side, Lincoln Square, a small part of of Clinton, which is like West Hell's Kitchen. And uh, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful neighborhood, and I'm mm-hmm. so incredibly lucky that I get to call it home. Lovely. It's um, it's also where I I had my first job in the city, my first acting job. I made my stage debut at Shakespeare in the Park, the Delacroix Theater, right wow. here in Central Park. Uh, and I, I fell in love with with this neighborhood, and I'm, I'm I can't believe that it's it's now my home. Yeah, it's a great part of the city. Yeah, but it's uh, it's an open seat. The, the incumbent is term limited, right. uh, and there are six candidates vying to replace her. Um, right. And uh, and so far, we're we're running a pretty pretty great campaign. And yeah. uh, I think we have a I think we have a decent shot at this. I well, I hope so. I've been very impressed by your social media and and your messaging. It all looks very very good. It seems like you have a good team behind you. Um, but you're not you know you're not entirely new to this, are you? Because you've helped out on democratic campaigns before and you've been part of uh, committees and stuff for fair wage and all of that stuff so although this is a bit yeah. it's a bit new you've got a bit of a, a past in it don't you right yeah I've been, I've been working in democratic politics for almost 20 years you know every time there's anytime there's an election I, I try to do what I can to get involved and make sure that we elect good candidates yeah uh, this is my first time running for for public office though I do have a little bit of election experience myself. I, I got involved um, with, with my labor union um, through a campaign called Fair Wage on Stage back in 2016. I was working off Broadway mm-hmm. um, at a, at a you know, fantastic theater. And my take-home pay after taxes was about $400 a week. And when yeah. you live in Manhattan, it's really tough to pay your bills on $400 a week. That sounds familiar. Um, so I got together with some colleagues and we started organizing. We created this, this campaign and this movement, Fair Wage on Stage. And we organized the entire off-Broadway theater community to sign petitions and wear buttons and make video testimonials. And that campaign gave our union leverage at the negotiating table to demand some real wage increases. Mm. So that year, we got between 32 and 83% wage increases, and it shattered every record in our union's history. Oh, wow. So from that moment on, I was hooked uh, as a labor organizer, and I ran for a seat on my union's council, mm-hmm. and I was elected. I was just uh, recently reelected to a second term. Congrats. And thank you. Uh, so I, I have a little bit of, of election experience. Uh, and things were going pretty well for us. You know, Broadway had a record-breaking year in 2019, mm-hmm. sold more tickets, had, had greater revenue. Um, our, we were having a lot of success at, uh, at negotiating higher wages and better contracts, more job opportunities for our more than 50,000 members across the country. Right. And then this pandemic hit, yeah, and it shut down our entire industry. Yeah. And all of our members have been unemployed for almost a year now. And this past, uh, this past summer, we realized that help wasn't coming for us right. at any level of government. We were getting left out of the conversation. Um, 
at the time, the Senate, the U.S. Senate was negotiating the HEROES Act, and it was going to be you know, another big uh, stimulus package in, in the middle of this, this pandemic. And it looked like the arts was going to get left out again. So we scrambled and started organizing a new campaign called Be an Arts Hero. And we organized the national arts community to collectively lobby the U.S. Senate for direct arts relief. And our organizers met with over 60 U.S. Senate offices. And we found a, a pretty receptive message with, with both Democrats and Republicans um, talking about the, the, the number of jobs that are created by the arts and culture sector, the, the total economic impact mm. for, for each of their states. And when you talk about it in those economic terms, even people who you know aren't thinking about the arts all the time right. start understanding just how important uh, this sector is to the greater economy. Yeah. And uh, they passed that stimulus package in December of this past year. And we got $15 billion in direct arts relief wow. in that package, uh, which is huge. Yeah. And it'll go a long way towards saving uh, a lot of the venues that we perform at. Um, but we have a lot of work to do to make the rest of the community whole um, and make sure that the, the actual workers who have been unemployed over the last year can find their way back to work. Yeah. I mean, that what always blows my mind because, you know, I've always got one foot in the States with Caitlin and everything. And I've just always been that way anyway, is, is how creatives have managed to survive over there. Like I've got a friend called Travis, who's a fantastic actor. I love that guy. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Uh, And he's had to take a, a, like a night job at a hotel to, to sort of make ends meet. And, you know, we're all having to scramble to make ends meet. But my point is, is that even over here, and we've got a conservative government, and you you did until recently, they have paid out, um, I think to this point, to me personally, about £15,000, something like that, in, in separate grants, because I'm self-employed, right? Something like that. And people in the States, up until a month or two ago, had had one check of was it 600 bucks 1200 bucks so yeah we got uh we got 1200 at the beginning of the pandemic and then we got another 600 uh in december um there the, the senate's about to pass another stimulus package yeah and I, I think we'll be getting another 1400 from yeah. that yeah i mean long overdue i how have have you got have you got any it doesn't have to be about yourself but how have your friends or, or people survived without that support uh everybody's in a slightly different boat i have a lot of friends who have moved out of the city yeah. and some of them plan to return eventually but you know they're in their mid 30s and living with their parents right which is not a situation that they want to be in <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very lucky that I, that I, that was not my, my situation, yeah. but a, a lot of people are deciding for themselves if this is a career that they can return to yeah. after, after a year away, um, you know, what is this industry even going to look like? Mm. How, how will we get back to work? How will they be able to rebuild a life for themselves in, yeah. in New York city after all this, especially after depleting their savings or, yeah. 
uh, you know, it's been, it's, it's, it's a struggle. Our, our people are really hurting right now. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's been a, an unimaginably difficult time, but, um, at going back to your messaging and your campaign, you seem pretty confident and optimistic and like, you've got a plan for how to, or at least like some kind of roadmap for like what the future ahead looks like and how we can get back to those record-breaking, amazing West End, Broadway, all of that stuff. So right. could you fill me in a bit on that? Yeah, so when uh, when I, we announced the campaign in November, um, I started sitting down with all the stakeholders in the arts and culture sector, from the, the Broadway League to the Off-Broadway League, the artistic directors of major cultural institutions, the unions, um, arts advocacy groups, just to figure out, you know, what what has your experience been over the last year? What do you need from the city in order to survive? What does that, you know, what does that mean for your particular um, group or, or, or institution? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I've had amazing conversations and, and it's helped me uh, come up with a whole lot of ideas. So I've, I've put together a pretty comprehensive arts and culture recovery plan. Um, it's all outlined on my website and it talks about the things that we, we can and should be doing right now. So for instance, New York City passed this new open culture law, which allows artists and arts groups to apply for permits to perform on the streets and in plazas and parks. Clever. And this just went into effect a couple of days ago. So we're still we're still figuring out what this what this means, what it's actually going to look like in practice. Um, it I, I think it's in it's a fantastic program. It's exactly what we need yeah. um, to get people back to work before it's safe to you know, reopen our indoor venue, venues. Yeah. Um, there's, I, I think it, it's not quite perfect yet. No. Um, not enough of the people who have been hardest hit by this pandemic will have access to, these, to this program. And so I think you know, we, can, we can continue to fine tune it. Right. Uh, and if I'm elected, that'll be a big priority to make sure that this program continues because how cool is it to be able to walk down the street and see a live opera performance yeah. or a comedy show or a, you know, a dance company performing. It, it will bring this whole city back to life. It's what we, it's what we all need. It's what we've all been starved for. Hasn't it? I mean, there's only so many Netflix shows that you can watch before you just want to actually see a real person. And uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I can't bring myself to, you know, I also do stand up comedy, but, also, there's like acting and stuff and over Zoom. And I just can't bring myself to get involved in any of that stuff because it's, yeah. I would much rather see a crazy person on the side of the street, but real person or a, or a real performer, even better, than spend any more time through this screen than I already do. <laughs> right. Yeah, I've, I've done a, a few uh zoom play readings yeah same yeah i think you know with any medium it it takes a lot of creativity to figure out and how do you make this an effective art form yeah uh and so there there, i think there there have been some pretty creative zoom performances over the last year uh i I think we've got a ways to go though before it becomes a, a medium that I really want to do. Yeah, yeah. You don't imagine there might be a, a new category in the Oscars anytime soon. Best, best Zoom performance. <laughs> right, right. But that's not to say that you there aren't great ways to, to put, you know, content online. You know, I, I've yeah. become helplessly addicted to TikTok. 
<laughs> really? Are you are you on TikTok? I am on TikTok. I, I'm, I've only dipped my toe, to be honest, but the, I'm there. The creators on TikTok are wildly inventive. Yeah, I I, I don't make videos myself. I'm a, I'm a happy passive consumer, um, but uh, yeah, I love. It's, it is insane. I mean, it's definitely designed for 21st century brains and the speed at which we consume and move on to the next thing is like encapsulated in this strange yeah. app that started off as just like a kind of karaoke thing and now is like, I don't know, the biggest video thing in the world. It's taking over. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but to, to, to go back to your question, the, um, and then the other things that we can be doing. So we have all of these vacant storefronts in the city. And space is one of the most valuable resources as an artist. Yeah. And so we could take all of these vacant storefronts and turn them into art galleries yeah. and rehearsal and performance spaces because that's what, that's what the artists need right now. Um, another major obstacle for artists living in the city is that it's just so incredibly expensive. Yeah. We need exclusive artist housing. We have artist housing, but according to law, it's not exclusively for artists, uh, but the city council could change that. Uh, oh, and, and, you know, explain that a bit more. I, I've not heard of artist housing. Sure. Oh, you don't have this in, in London? I don't think so. So the idea is that we, we want to keep artists in our city. Right. Uh, and there are a few buildings across the city that are designated as artist housing. And so you get, you know, it's, uh, it's a, you get a preferential rent uh, wow. and it makes it, you know, makes it affordable for, for us when, you know, most of us are freelancers yeah. and we don't know what our next job is going to be. Right. Um, it allows us to live in this incredibly expensive city. Um, but the, uh, the, the city government could could pass a new law to make it uh, to make these buildings exclusively for artists. Right. Um, it would give a lot more artists an opportunity to um, a chance at, at one of these affordable uh, rental units. Yeah, and also then increase the the possibility for collaboration and you know who knows what kind of new projects could come out of such an idea. That's a really yeah, that's a brilliant thing. I wish we had yeah. that here. That would be great. Right, and if you know if you look at when we're trying to spur economic activity, all the academic research shows that find the artists and the economic activity will follow. Yeah. Because people want to be where we are. Right. Uh, they want to be where there's arts and culture. They want to, they want to go out at night and they want to see things and do things yeah. and take, take in experiences. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's the economic uh, Im impact that we, we have on, um, on you know, the city as a whole. Uh, so then, at, you know, after we do the things that we can do right now, we need to ensure the long-term survival of all of our cultural institutions. Mm. And I, you know, the ones I've talked to have, are, are fighting for their survival right now. They don't, they don't know if they're going to make it through this pandemic. You know, we're hoping to reopen this this coming summer, but mm -hmm. they, you know, they are barely scraping by right now. So they need money, and they need a, a jump start. Uh, and money is really tight at both the city and the state level right now. So if if we can't get it from the government, where else could we look? And I've looked at the, the top 10 media and tech companies, places like um, Viacom, Comcast, uh, Disney, Apple, Facebook, Google. They, they all have streaming services. 
And, you know, that's that's what's gotten us by over the last years. We're all sitting at home watching TV. Definitely. And all of these streaming services use talent that was developed right here in New York's cultural institutions over many, many decades. And I, I think we have a pretty good argument to make to these companies that they owe a debt of gratitude to our cultural institutions. Uh, and also they want to ensure the long-term survival of these cultural institutions to make sure that that talent has continued to be developed. Right. And it's not just the actors we're talking about, it's the writers and the designers and the musicians mm -hmm. that are, you know, all of this talent that goes into creating uh, the, the shows for these streaming services that make these companies tons and tons of money. Yeah. So if we go to these top 10 media and tech companies and ask for just 0.2% right. of their cash on hand, right. that's just money that they have sitting around in their checking account, 0.2%. We could create a relief fund of over $1.1 billion. Jeez. And we've seen the greatest transfer of wealth over the last year. All of the Oh, you know, Jeff Bezos, he was rich before. He, he is now I, so unfathomably I, rich <laughs> over the last year. It's not that there's, it's not that we don't have money. No. The money is just sitting in different bank accounts yeah. than it was a year ago. <laughs> so yeah. we can either tax, we can either tax those, those individuals and those firms, or we could ask for a one-time charitable contribution. And that's what this idea is. I think that's a good idea. Yeah. Right. I mean, Bezos, if you're talking about Bezos, he's got Amazon Prime, right? There's there's a ton of media on there and it's it's growing. It's one of the more popular growing services. I I use it. I, I assume everyone does, even if there are ethical quandaries with the service. I, I think even after he got divorced, he was still the richest man in the world after giving half of his wealth away. So like he's definitely got a penny or two to to spare. Um, I guess the trick is is getting his ear and getting his heart, isn't it? Right, exactly, uh, and that's why uh, it, it's it's so important for, for for us to elect a mayor who prioritizes arts and culture. So right. I've been saying from the beginning that even if I'm elected, I won't be able to get all this done on my own. Right, I need I'm going to need a whole, whole lot of help, and we're in the middle of this incredibly competitive election cycle where over twenty people are in the running to, to be the next mayor of New York. Wow. We have almost 300 candidates running for 51 city council seats. Wow. So uh, just this past week, I reached out to all the candidates who were running and I asked them to sign a pledge, committing themselves to prioritizing the revitalization of arts and culture. And so far we have, I believe 85 co-signers 85 okay. other candidates have signed on saying that, that they will prioritize arts and culture, which is a, a, a major step yeah. in, in the right direction. That's not bad. A third, a third roughly in about a week. Like, you know, that's, you know, and um, politics is, is a tricky business, isn't it? It's the art of the possible is the, the, the uh, quote I always remember. Um, have you, have you experienced any of, are you, and feel free to not say anything or, or skirt around this, but have you experienced any of the darker arts aspect of, of the polit political game? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I, because this was my first time running for office, uh, as I was mulling over the idea, I sat down with every friend who works in politics, had ever worked on a campaign, uh, 
just to pick their brain to you know to see to figure out how to do this. And several people told me uh, up front, trust no one in New York City <laughs> politics. And I, I have to say, I've, I've actually had uh, pretty pretty great conversations with with most people. Okay. Um, and I've, I've developed some some really really great relationships over the last three months. Um, I, I will say, you know, I, I had no idea what was going to happen when we announced right. this campaign. Of course. I, I did not realize that we were going to receive more individual donations than any other candidate running in Manhattan. We received over 630 individual donations, and about a third of those donations came from individuals who listed their occupation as unemployed. Wow, that's amazing. And so that that just shows me that our message is resonating. That you know these are these donations are largely coming from arts workers who have been the ones who have been struggling the most. It's right. our industry that shut down the first. We're the last ones who are going to be going back to work. So they are they are desperate for a champion right now. Uh, but you know I I didn't know what was going to happen, and I, I the only pushback I've received from anyone have has been from people who have uh have been entrenched in new york city politics for a very long time right i think i I think when you're involved in any kind of organization whether that's a political party or a union or uh you know whatever else you start um you know you start getting comfortable Mm -hmm. and the status quo starts making sense to you Mm -hmm. and you're probably benefiting from the status quo definitely but the problem with New York City, uh, with New York City just in general, is that the status quo is not working for nearly enough of us. Yeah. And there are so many people who I've, I've met and talked to over the last three months who feel ignored and abandoned um, and e- even talked down to by some of our elected officials. Um, so, I, you know, I'm doing my best to bring those people into the conversation and make sure that their voices are, are represented. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, you know, there, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call them dark forces, but there are, are certainly establishment mm. forces that are not interested in shaking things up, mm-hmm. um, that the, the, the status quo is working for them just fine. And, uh, and they don't want to change. Yeah. And presumably they were, you know, bright eyed and bushy tailed when they first came in and you know, all about changing things up and establishing yeah. a new order. And then as time goes on, like you said, it just it just becomes a different thing, doesn't it? And I think that's, you know, that's true for for all of us. That's just yeah. human nature. Yeah. I you know, I see it, I see it in myself. You know, we were uh when I was elected to my union's council, I you know, was one of the um the rabble rousers. Right. And now <laughs> I've been around for five years. And uh and I we see this this new crop of of advocates coming in. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's a lot of energy. <laughs> it's just human nature, you know? Yeah. Um, but, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to being a rabble rouser in the New York City Council. Well, I mean, I couldn't wish you more luck. Um, so if, for people who are eligible to vote, I, we'll, we'll repeat this information at the end, but just let's get it down now. What, what, what are the steps they can take? Yeah, so the, the primary I'm running in, it's the Democratic primary on June 22nd. 
And there is no Republican primary in this district. This district is, is very Democratic. <laughs> um, that's not to say there aren't Republicans. I'm, and I've, I've met and I've talked to the Republicans, but yep. there's no Republican primary. So whoever wins the Democratic primary in June, June 22nd, will go on to win the general in November. Right. So it's all about June 22nd. Uh, in order to vote, you have to be a registered Democrat. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the deadline for, if you live in the district, the deadline for registering the Democratic Party has already passed. Okay. Great. But if you, are, if you are new to the district you can, and you're already a Democrat, you can still register to vote Brilliant. for the upcoming election. Uh, and that, oh, we're using ranked choice voting for the first time ever. Ah, are you? Ah, yeah. this is a great is, system. Yeah, I don't know if they're using it anywhere in the UK. Do you know? Uh, we have it in Northern Ireland, and we have it for some small, um, not, the, not the national elections, but some smaller local or mayoral elections. Some of them use ranked choice. Yes, now I remember NPR did a story about uh, a ranked choice voting election in Northern Ireland, yeah. where they followed a candidate who, in the first tabulation of votes, was way behind. And she assumed that she lost. But then at the second tabulation of votes, she picked up all the second choice votes and she won. (laughs) And that's what ranked choice voting is about. It requires the winner to receive a majority support, uh, not just a plurality. So in previous elections, you go in, you vote for one candidate, Mm -hmm. and that candidate in a a crowded field, that candidate could win with like 30% of the vote, which is just crazy. You know, why why should any candidate win? Exactly. With 30% of the vote. So ranked choice voting, you go in and in New York, you're allowed to rank up to five candidates according to preference. And this way, uh, there's no spoiler effect. Uh, And after the first tabulation, if no one receives more than 50%, the lowest vote getter is eliminated. And the second choice votes from that that candidate is uh, reallocated to the remaining candidates and that continues to happen until one person receives more than 50%. Yeah, it's so, it's a it's a much more democratic system in a in a country that is a democracy or a sense. Right. So right. But it makes perfect sense, right? So do and this is our right then This not- is our first time oh, using it. Ah, okay. Uh, and so we really don't know how it's going to work out. Mm, yeah, I'm imagining there'll be a lot of people confused at the ballot box. Do you put the number next to the name? Is that how it works? I think uh, <laughs> if you can if you can picture it this way, yeah, you have you have the names of the candidates right. on the y-axis, mm-hmm. and then you have the 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 number ah. rankings on the x-axis, mm-hmm. and then you put a check. Um, where your preference is for each of the candidates. There we go. Well, good luck with with all of that and people (laughs) getting very confused by it, I'm sure. But progress is is slow and long, but eventually I think it arcs towards the good. Um, So, uh, yeah, that's uh, it's an amazing new step for you. um, And I really, really hope that it works out well for you. Um, Thank you. Monsieur Amura. Um, but let's not talk only about politics because I want to talk about stories about us. And I want to also talk about, because I've been looking at your uh, IMDb, right? Because you're a very talented actor as well. And I 
saw you in this show because it's basically my favorite TV show, but I want to talk to you about it, which is you were in an episode of Succession. Yeah. Somehow I knew that was going to be the one you were uh, I mean, isn't it just the, the, the best? Um, for anyone who hasn't seen it, from the writers of Peep, well, actually one of the writers of Peep Show, uh, and made, uh, I think, it, HBO in the US, and there's, it's also tied with Channel 4 in the UK. I actually didn't know that it was from one of the writers of Peep Show. Yeah. That Peep Show is one of my all-time favorite television shows. But now that you know, can't you see some of the links between some of the humor? Yeah, yeah. I've always, I've always wanted to do an American version of Peep Show. Yeah, I mean, I can't believe one doesn't exist yet. That's, surely it would be a massive hit. Come on over here. We'll, we'll do it. <laughs> well, I'm working on it. I was going to be over there, but you know, whatever. We'll get we'll get to that, I'm sure. But um, tell me a bit about your experience of, of, of working on Succession. What was that like? Uh, well, I have to say, Brian Cox oh. is the kindest man I have ever worked with. Oh. Uh, we, you know, we, we spent the day on, on set together and he's been a longtime idol of mine. He's <sighs> Incredible. Just so incredible in every role he plays. And it was so, you know, it was really exciting to watch him work on, on set. Mm. Uh, that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, advice that Al Pacino gave to Jesse Eisenberg. And, and, and Jesse told this story in some talk show where he said, you know, uh, Pacino said to Jesse Eisenberg, you know, just because, the, just because the director yells action doesn't mean you need to start acting. <laughs> I thought, I thought that's such great advice. That is wonderful. Yeah. Uh, and, and Brian Cox just really in, in, encapsulates that idea that it's just seamless. Mm. There's, there's no acting involved that he is, that from the moment before the director yells action to the moment after, it's, it's, all, it's all there. It's all in, in the same man. Um, there's no artifice to it. It's yeah, it's it's really cool to watch. Um, but at, you know, at the end of at the end of the day, I, I said, you know, Brian, it's so um, it was so great to work with you. And he he grabbed my hand and looked me in the eye, and he said, "It was so wonderful working with you. I hope we get to do it again one day." <laughs> I'm like Brian, oh, <laughs> it's still my heart. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, he is a very charming man. That's amazing because obviously Logan Roy, the character he plays, is you know one of the biggest POSs out there. Um, and if you've ever watched the uh, the documentary about the Murdochs, now they swear Succession is not about the Murdoch family. Okay, but there's an amazing, I think it's three or four part documentary about the rise of the Murdoch Empire. You know, they own Fox. They own uh, the sun. They own all. I mean, huge, right? Um, the parallels between the two are remarkable. So it's definitely worth seeing. Uh, I mean, if anything, I would say um, maybe Murdoch's even worse than Logan Roy because at least Logan Roy seems to have a sense of humour. Um, but <laughs> that's now, right. I said it. Did you see Ink when it was in London, the play Ink about, right. about the Murdoch family? I did not get to see that play. So it transferred to Broadway here in New York, um, and I got to see it. And there are some really extraordinary performances. Bertie Carvel, 
Oh, um, right. Friend of a friend. I know Bertie, yeah. And, uh, and, and a good friend of mine was in it. Um, a, a friend of mine who's actually working on my campaign now, oh, right. <laughs> doing, doing research and, and policy work for me. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, just that those it's story of the Murdoch family is extraordinary. The it empire really is. Yeah. that he built and how he changed the way that we talk about the news and current events. Yeah. I know. In both of our countries. In both of our countries, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I just out of curiosity, is, you know, obviously you're you're a, you're a Democrat. You're um, a New Yorker, although of course you're not not born in New York. But I'm sure you consider yourself a New Yorker. You've been there for a long time. Are you just having a sigh of relief that the the big orange man is gone, or uh, does he yeah. still haunt the the city? <laughs> It's it's such an incredible relief. We have gone through so much trauma over the last four years oh because because of his administration, and I, it, it's a hard thing to. Um, I, I don't think we've even we have not come to terms with it. And of course, it it climaxed in the insurrection at the Capitol, oh. which we're still we're still dealing with the aftermath of that, and uh, people have not been held accountable, and there are members of Congress who. Uh, possibly aided and abetted that insurrection. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we're, it's going to take a lot for us, for the country to heal. Um, but, man, we, you know, we, we always talk about how divided we are in, right. in politics, but right. it's, it's never been like this. No. It's never been like this. And I don't, I don't know how we, I don't know how we walk it back. That is, um, that is the. I mean, yeah, that's that's. I I I I, I fear for it, and and good luck to you because you're entering a fray, like you say, that is so bitterly divided, and no one seems to have really any road. There are a few things we can agree on. It seems like, uh, like the GME stock thing was funny. Like it seems like that oh, is. The- that's some the GameStop. Yeah, GameStop. <laughs> the left and the right, for some reason, we can agree on that. Is there anything else? It, it seems vanishingly small, the amount of things. But I guess part of the challenge is trying to find those things. And because you, a, a divided country doesn't help anyone, does it? It, it really doesn't. Um, and, you know, we're still seeing the effects of it. Uh, it, it was a year ago that, that Trump started using the phrases uh, Kung flu virus and, and Chinese virus. And, you know, I, I would watch those press conferences and I was, I was scared because I knew exactly what was going to happen. And uh, for, for the audience listening at home, uh, I am an Asian American man. I, I will be the first Japanese American elected to office in New York state. Amazing. So to hear Trump get up there and, and use those those racial those racialized slurs. Uh, I knew that we were going to start seeing hate crimes against Asian Americans, and yeah. sure enough, hate crimes have skyrocketed in this country against Asian Americans, and and here in New York City, where uh, especially uh, our, our senior citizens were walking down the street oh and getting God. shoved down on the pavement, or getting slashed across the face and, and stabbed. It's, it's terrifying stuff. And, you know, this, that kind of hatred, you know, didn't start with Trump. Right. 
it's been, you know, Asian Americans have been facing it for as long as we've been in this country, which is since since the you know the 19th century. Well, yeah, right. That's the the original story, isn't it? The indentured servitude or slavery of the the railroad, right? That's yeah, and yeah. indentured servitude and the Chinese Exclusion Act and yeah. the Asian Exclusion Act, and then uh, Japanese internment and the wars yeah. in Korea and Vietnam. It's been it's been with us for as long <laughs> as Asians have been in this country, yeah. but. Uh, a year ago, when Trump started using those phrases, we we saw the hate crimes starting to skyrocket. Um, and how do you how do you put that genie back into the bottle once it's released? I don't know. I don't know, I don't know because even it, you know even the storming of the Capitol doesn't re- result in impeachment. I I I, I listened to this. Um, so there's this good podcast by uh, it's called Mayor Culpa, right? I don't know if you've heard of it, but Michael Cohen, who I'm sure you have heard of, Trump's former fixer, attorney, all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's he's under house arrest at the minute for various reasons. And he's he's basically turned like full 180 from being in Trump's corner to his biggest critic. Um, and it's a foul-mouthed, hilarious weekly show. Uh, I recommend you listen to it. Why did I bring it up? Because, oh... We're talking about his use of language and stuff. And there was um, things about, you know, apparently there's tapes, right? There's all these tapes of Trump on The Apprentice using all these words and that people are trying to get him to re- to be released. And it's like, his point is like, you don't need the tapes. Look at everything he says. Look, at, he's obviously a racist. You don't need to, like... <laughs> I, I did you see now this is going back a bit but this blew my mind I remember when he was giving the coronavirus briefings so this is kind of old news but it was just so eminently watchable as a moment of history he's up there talking and it's when he's talking about you know maybe we can find a way to inject bleach or put sunlight in our blood and there's this woman I think her name is Deborah Nix I might be getting that slightly wrong who's like a medical doctor and she sat there on the side, just with this ashen face, just listening to this buffoon spout dangerous nonsense, whether it be racist things that mean then there's more attacks or bad science that mean then people are hospitalized. Or all of that, I I, I, I feel like oh, getting, a bit, uh, <laughs> getting a bit overheated about it. And it was months ago, but that's probably my own issues. Right. But to, to go back to your question, yeah, we are all breathing an enormous sigh of relief to have a reasonable man in the White House right now. <laughs> and he has already done so much good since he, since yeah. he was uh, inaugurated on January 20th. Um, but it's, you know, it's going to take years to repair the damage of the last four years. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, and the, that the Senate being 50-50 is going to make anything past pretty tricky i saw yeah. the the minimum wage thing has already been shot down uh you know it only takes one person to sort of nix that and then you've only got sort of a year and a half until midterms when everything could change it's like it's such a it's, it's strange from an outsider's point of view you have such a vanishingly small window of time to get things done but then i read that like senators i think is it every six years and then Supreme Court justices are for life. And it just seems a very strange 
contradiction <laughs> in that why is it that some of these like you said you have incumbents who aren't allowed to run again which i think that pro- that makes sense to me as opposed to lifetime appointments which seem bizarre right well, we have different rules at the city level than at the federal level so there we, we have term limits here which are um uh which i i think are great i i I think we need new new people, new ideas yeah, to um, uh, to represent us. Um, at the federal level, there are no term limits, so that you know there are some some members of the House, some members of the Senate who have been there for for over forty years, uh, and then the the Supreme Court is there. <laughs> We're talking about the Supreme Court. They get lifetime <laughs> appointments. The idea being that that will grant them. Uh, that will will give them the, the the freedom to rule fairly without having to you know to to face an, an electorate. Right. Uh, we could certainly put a time limit on on the term uh. that we're given, and uh, and then someone else could fill that seat. Yeah. I I mean I I think it has been interesting watching some of their rulings. You know, because obviously Trump had this crazy sort of dream that he could put people on the court that would sort of act like his proxies, you know? So he rushed through after uh, RBG died, he rushed through all of the Coney Barrett thing. And, you know, he installed three Supreme Court justices in the case of four years. And he obviously has this crazy idea because he's, you know, a narcissist and all the rest of it, that they'll just do his bidding. And thankfully we have seen some of these rulings lately, right? Like like the Philadelphia one with the voting irregularities, quote unquote, just just tossed out. And it it gives you some, like you said, you know, the healing process will be long, but things like that give you some sigh of relief of like, okay, not everyone is infected with Trump derangement syndrome. Not everyone is an acolyte or the opposite of an acolyte, which I can't think of right now because I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, we our our democratic system is screwed up in so many ways. Um, you know, the the Supreme Court justices are appointed by the president, and because both George W. Bush and Donald Trump uh, lost the popular vote, yeah, five of the Supreme Court justices, two who were appointed by Bush and three who were appointed by Trump, were appointed by presidents who did not receive a majority support of the American people. <laughs> and that's why we have this six to three conservative majority yeah. on the United States Supreme Court. And that's that's not going to change. There's no way the electoral system is going anywhere. I know that it's a talking point that kind of comes up every election cycle. But the reality is, like, if you read up on how it would be in order for it to change, there's just no way you'll drum up enough support from the, like you say, from the people who've been there for 40 years. There's Why would they? And yeah, the grassroots individuals coming in, they'll have all the fire under their belly and none of the power to do it. And right. do you do you envisage a future in which that will ever change? Am I being too pessimistic? Well, there, there's actually a possibility that, that it could change. There's this interstate compact that's been going around for, uh, for several years now where According to the Constitution, uh, each state gets to determine how they uh, how they assign their electoral college votes. It's totally up to the state to, to determine those rules. So, uh, several states have band together to to pledge that they will give their electoral college votes to 
the to to whichever candidate wins uh, the popular uh, vote. Uh, interesting. It's it's called the popular vote interstate compact, I think, and it only goes into effect once uh, a number of states um, whose electoral college votes add up to a two hundred and seventy majority mm-hmm. um, sign this pledge. Mm. So once once we have that two hundred and seventy uh, <sighs> majority, then the, the the popular uh, vote will will rule the day. That's, and, that's a very that's an interesting way of of sort of hijacking the system and making it fairer. That's, that's right. So it's it, I'm I'm sure there will be legal challenges when right of course when that, when that comes into effect, but. Uh, yeah, but it's a real possibility. Oh, well, that's very interesting. interesting. I, and speaking of statehood, because um, this has been coming up in the news as well a lot. What What are your thoughts on the the you know various overseas territories, or you know, be it Guam, be it American Samoa, be it DC, gaining statehood? What What, what are your thoughts around that? I'm all for it. I mean, they, we should have made DC a state on, on the first day of of Joe Biden's presidency. Yeah. Um, we, there are, Washington DC has a greater population than several states. It has a larger population than Wyoming and Wyoming gets two, two U S senators. Right. Uh, there's, there's no reason that Washington DC shouldn't, uh, shouldn't become state and shouldn't have full representation in, in Congress. Uh, and then the other one is Puerto Rico. Right. Puerto Rico has, I think 4 million residents in it. Wow. It's a U.S. territory, uh, and has a greater population than uh, than almost half of the U.S. states. <laughs> so, if if they became a state and get U- two U.S. senators plus, uh, like I, I think five or six uh, members of of the House, right. uh, and I think that's got to be a a real priority um, for D.C. I think D.C. is totally on board with it. Mm-hmm. Puerto Rico, um, it, it's it'll ultimately be up to them whether or not they want to become right. a state. But I think they they quite consistently vote slightly in favor of becoming one, right? As opposed to American Samoa, which I believe tends to vote the other way, that they don't want to become one. Uh, it's yeah, with, with Puerto Rico, it dep- they've had a number of, uh, of referendum votes on the issue, yeah. and it depends on how the, the question is phrased. Right. So in one referendum, I think there were three options to choose to become a state Mm-hmm. to uh, keep the status quo mm-hmm. or to remain or to become uh, an independent country. Mm. And so when you divide it three ways that like well, that, yeah, then <laughs> it's hard to get a majority for, for any of those options. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, oh, it's hard to know what's better because, you know, the, the, the whole problem that happened in the UK with the Brexit thing, which nobody wanted and now everybody has, is that it was just a very simple yes no option and it was at a time when people were very angry and when you're angry you tick the the box that expresses that anger uh, yeah. you know and instead of sort of being a well considered oh let me take into account all the facts you know yeah. there's just there's all the hate mongering and the fear and that riles people up and they go in there and they oh, and then well, let me let me turn the tables on you uh, as an Englishman, how do you feel about Scottish independence? Oh, well, look, if they if they vote in favor of it, then, you know, all, more power to them. That's uh, 
again, they've had quite a few referendums and they've all been very close to the 50-50 thing. Um, I I personally love Scotland. You've, you've been. Um, I've got a lot of friends who are Scottish and I'm, I'm all for, you know, I don't think we should have left the European Union. I think there should be, those states should be part of the, I'm all for, for like, you know, having broader churches, not smaller, right? I understand like small local government makes sense to me because you deal with the areas that there are. So devolution makes sense, but, but it kind of feels like a divorce and uh, divorces can be for the right reasons. Um, but if it's because that we're like somehow abusing the Scots, we're, no, I'm not, I have no part. Why, why, are, why are you abusing the Scots? Well, that's how some, that's how, I mean, uh, look, can I just say I come from Irish and Jewish stock. Okay. We have been, <laughs> we have not colonized anywhere. And, um, uh, but, um, <laughs> but that's how some Scottish people feel, obviously, because, you know, the ultimate power rests in London to make decisions over people in Scotland. And I'm sure that's how people, you know, that's, that's, that's a lot of the Texas independent thing is why should those people in Washington decide what happens here, right? Which is why you've got that federalized system, which should, in effect, work. And I think if we had something a bit more like that here, there would be less of a need to have that independence uh, streak, but but the Scots have always been a very independent-minded people. So if they want it and they vote for it, they should be able to have it. Yeah, I w- w- was it twenty fourteen. They had that the, the Scottish referendum. I think there might have been one more recently than that, but there the there um, been a few. Yeah, it, w- it was that one. I I remember staying up late to watch the results come in. And I, I don't know why I was so invested in this election, but I, I really, I really, at the time, did not want uh, Scotland to to secede from the United Kingdom. I think just as an American, um, we need a strong United Kingdom. Yeah, um, you know, it's our, it's one of our oldest alliances. It's right. one of our greatest partnerships. We share a lot of the same values. We need a strong United Kingdom. Yeah, but then after Brexit happened. <laughs> <laughs> my feelings on the matter really changed. And I, I started to say, oh, well, if England, and it really was England, when you look at how the, the votes yes, broke down geographically, yep. Yep. Uh, not London, it was no. you know, England, the, <laughs> the countryside outside of London. Basically. If they don't want to be a part of Europe, well, I, I don't see why Scotland, which very much voted to, to remain part of Europe, should have to leave. Yeah. No, I know. But also, equally, if it's only, and it really is only sort of a few areas of countryside in the southeast and the northwest and Wales that decide that we don't want to be part of the European Union, why should all the rest of us have to be dragged out of it too? And I mean, you're talking about um, like packages for artists and stuff. Already, it's become almost impossible for any, any artists from the UK who want to go to Europe for any kind of job, the amount of paperwork and the costs associated with all of this has just skyrocketed. And I'm sure you know when you're an actor coming up, you know these the, the smaller jobs and the and the touring and the and the going around. It really helps you build as a performer, as a person. You know, travel broadens the mind. And the, what the first thing that happened when the Brexit vote was announced, and I've got it right. 
here is I got all my paperwork in order and I'm going to become an Irish citizen. So I will still be European. Even if the rest of this silly country decides they don't want to be anymore. (laughs) So you'll have a a British passport. Yeah. And a European passport. Yeah. And then will you be able to get an American passport? And and yes, I've checked. I'm I'm allowed three. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping I'll be able to have three passports. Wow. (laughs) I don't really know why, but it seems like in this crazy world, I may as well. Yeah, well, when the, when the apocalypse happens, you'll you'll have many escape routes. <laughs> That's what I always think about. How, what's what's my way out of here? Yeah, I'll have, I'll have my go bag for very. I'll look like a spy. Actually, I've just realised. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Homeland Security will will keep you extra long. Oh, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Maybe I'll try you know, to change I, my name a few times as well. Make it extra complicated. <laughs> <laughs> you know, over over the past four years, a lot of Americans would would say, you know, if Trump gets reelected, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm yeah. leaving the country, right. uh, going to Canada or going, going right. to Europe. I guess that easy. And right. <laughs> and I, um, that, that was never, that was never a plan for me. And I, I think some of them were joking, but yeah, you know, I, I always plan to go down with this ship. <laughs> well, there we go. I think that that's a, uh... You know that's a it's a noble thing, and also you know if the ship's going down, you can try and patch it up, can't you? And see if we can't get this thing back afloat. Right, right, right. <laughs> if we if we all leave, if we all leave place and leave leave it in the hands of the Trump supporters, we're uh, yeah in trouble. We're in trouble, exactly. Now I'm mindful that I've I've taken up an hour of your time, so uh, I, I won't ask for too much more. I just wanted to ask. Two little things. One, you were in another of my favorite ever shows, High Maintenance. Mm-hmm. What was what was that like? Just you can just be brief. I love that show. For anyone who hasn't seen it, it's a hilarious show. Yeah, I so I had known uh, it, the the show was co-created by uh, Katja Blitchfield and Ben Sinclair, and they yeah. were they were married and they, they created this little web series together that really took off. And then it was bought by, by Vimeo and then later picked up by HBO. Yeah. Um, I had known Katja for probably a decade. She was a, a casting associate at NBC. And so anytime I went into audition for uh, 30 rock, she was there. Right. Um, I remember I, I spent some time out in LA and she had just moved out there and I, I ran into her um, at the NBC office. I said, hey, how are you? How's, how's it going out here? And she said, I hate it here. Can't wait to get back to, get back to New York. <laughs> so we, we really bonded over that because yeah. LA was not was not for me. I, I was going to ask, that was my second question because I saw you'd spent some time in LA. Yeah, that was going to be my second question. Yeah, uh, it was not It was not for me. Yeah. Uh, so I, I've known her for a long time. It was so cool to watch this this web series they created just turn into this phenomenon. Um, and I was I was honored when they asked me to to play a small role on it. Um, and it's uh, you know this is it, it's such a tiny world. This um, that episode that I was on stars Will Jackson Harper that people may know from the TV show The Good Place on NBC, right. um, another NBC show. Yeah. Uh, we released, uh, my campaign released Will Jackson Harper's endorsement of my candidacy uh, last week. So it's a, it's a, it's a tiny world. Yeah. It all, it all comes full circle. 
it all circles back doesn't it and of course high maintenance is about um for people who don't know weed delivery and uh and i think i saw on your page if we feel free to cut all of this out that you are for legalization which i am as well and i know it was just passed in uh new jersey and i think it's almost half the states now have some form what what's your what are your thoughts on that yeah uh it is we are way way past the point of um of, of when we should have legalized marijuana yeah. Uh, it, the war on drugs has done so much harm yeah. to this country, especially to communities of color. Yeah. Where we have locked up generations yeah. of people behind bars, uh, for, uh, for, for these, you know, these, these drug crimes that are now legal in many of the, in many of the U S states. Um, New York is, is behind the ball here. Mm. Um, we need to legalize it and we need to make sure that the revenue that comes in, mm -hmm. uh, it, it goes to the communities that were disproportionately harmed by the war on drugs. Absolutely. Uh, and that they are the ones, the ones who were, uh, who were convicted of, of these drug crimes should be the ones to have, uh, the first, the first dibs at getting these, these licenses yeah. to sell it legally. Yeah. 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 That's a great idea. Yeah, brilliant. There's some form of restitution because, I mean, it's it's just so clear, isn't it? I mean, look look at the states where it's been legalized. Have they descended into hell holes? No, they've they've flourished. They've created billions of dollars of jobs and and income. And I mean, the world right now needs to a chill out, which weed is good for, and b <laughs> start to make a bit of money because no one's making money. And this is a a good way of 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 doing both of those things i think so it's a great way and because we're facing this enormous budget shortfall both at the city and the state level we have to get really creative about how we're going to raise revenue yeah uh, and and legalizing marijuana and and taxing it is yeah. is just one of those ideas yeah um listen i've taken up over an hour of your time jeffrey and you've been really generous just tell people one more time how they can find you online for all of the things yeah jeffreyomura.com very nice um, sign up to volunteer you can donate right there on, on the website um, i have an extraordinary team of people working for me and they are really expensive so we need, <laughs> we need money to pay them uh and uh and i i believe in paying people what they're worth great and so um so help us out send us uh send us a few bucks uh, you can follow us on on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook yep. and Clubhouse. Oh, you're on Clubhouse. There we go. Wow, up there hobnobbing with Elon Musk and Bezos, eh? <laughs> oh yeah, every every night. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll put all the links and everything in the show notes and stuff. And I'll try and get this episode up as, as quick as possible, as this is all quite timely. Um, and the election is June twenty second. Right. And I'm running in District Six of New York City for the New York City Council. Uh, and uh, and I look forward to your vote. Yeah, well, I, I wish I could, but um, I think Caitlin can. So I'll I'll strong arm her if she can, and uh, and all of my New York friends, I'll bother them with this. And uh, I wish you the absolute best of luck with this and everything you're doing. It's been just really lovely to see you, and I can't wait until we can actually hang out again in person. That'll be a treat. Yeah. Well, next time, next time you're back in the states, I, it'll be. Uh, for, for happier reasons. Yes. I, I hope. Yeah, I will actually be there in October for a wedding. And Great. fingers crossed, everything should be roughly normal-ish 
by then. So let's hang out then. Awesome. Awesome. I'll see you then. Okay. Take care, brother. See you. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the show. If you've enjoyed it, please give us five stars and consider becoming a subscriber and maybe even supporting us on Patreon. Really, really, really helps me continue making this show. Uh, If you haven't enjoyed it, then you can fuck off. Many, many thanks to Nils Hennis-Steer for the amazing music and to Dave Fox for the cool artwork. Please keep coming back every week for more Bliss of the Abyss.